Greetings, fellow citizens of Disneyland. Bricky here. Welcome back to Disneyland for Designers. And uh, I'm cutting it close to the wire here. There's only a few hours left in March. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I worked really hard on trying to figure out the proper tone for today's episode because I definitely wanted to celebrate all the amazing women that enrich our lives with the careers that they've taken on. And I wanted to focus on women at Disneyland and how that all evolved around. And I knew that there was a great story with Mary Blair. So forgive me. I know I'm a white middle-aged guy and probably not my cross the bear, but I'm doing the best that I can. And I tried to approach this in the most appropriate way possible. So if you could give me just a little bit of creative space and please understand that essentially I'm just trying trying to make the world a little bit better, trying to mix things up a little bit better. I can't change who I am, but I can definitely change the actions that I put out into this world. With all that being said, I definitely need to take a moment to thank all of my Club 1313 members. Uh, their support are the reason why I can do podcasts like this that take an insane amount of time. So thanks to each and every one of you for supporting Disneyland for Designers and the Adventures in Design YouTube channel. Your support is allowing me to bite off more and more to chew on, to to envision and to dream up much larger projects that are way more complicated because I know that I have you supporting me. And hey, if you want to support the content, that's one reason to sign up for club1313.com. But if you want to also be a part of a very, very rad and supportive Disneyland community, I would strongly suggest that if you have the means, head over to club1313.com today, become a member and yes, the bonus content, I hope that you enjoy that. But I tell you right now, the bond that is the friendship of Club 1313, that's the thing that I know will last. So what do you say? Let's get started with today's episode of Disneyland for Designers. And by the way, don't forget, you can still catch me three more Thursdays as I'm covering Touch of Disney each and every week. So if you want to take a lap around Disney's California Adventure, please let me provide you a window into the magic. I've often said that everything comes from art, but art comes from concepts. And concept artwork is the birth of nearly everything that we've ever touched, experienced, or been able to see. Concept art, simply put, is the dream that everything comes from. In the art of making the concept, you are free to dream any way that you want to. You have an idea, you sketch it, you illustrate it a hundred times, a thousand times until it feels right. Each sketch only different than the one before it because you slightly move a character to the left. You slightly move the horizon three degrees. You're constantly sculpting to try to get to what looks like your idea or what you think your idea should look like. So if concept artwork is the dream that everything comes from, architecture and animation then becomes the reality. But you cannot have a building without someone somewhere sitting at an artboard and sketching up what could said building look like. What could new attractions, new lands, new third gates look like without somebody sitting there creating a mood board from a dream, from inspiration. And the same is true with animation. You can't have a film without somebody somewhere sitting around figuring out 
This is what the character would feel like. This is the environment that these characters live in. This script in front of me, this is the way that this should be shot. This is the way that it should be framed. But eventually, when you get to the actual animation, you have now entered into the world of reality. And I know that it's very weird to say animation is reality because in many ways we see it as escapism. But to the untrained eye, before you ever got to the characters, before you ever got to the storyboard, before you ever got to the animation, there was somebody somewhere, a brave soul that did the concept art in which everything would be built. With concept art, if you're a concept artist, you also need to be a dreamer. You need to be somebody who doesn't feel attached to reality in all the ways that you need to be if you're an architect or an animator. If you're doing concept art, you have to allow yourself to be loose. You have to let the pen, the brush, whatever it is, the medium that you're using, you have to let it be an extension of your hand. Art and sketching comes from the heart. Design and architecture comes from the mind. And even though all of this is an emotional response that a creative has, when you get into the concepting stage, you have to be able to be loose. You have to be willing to take chances. You also have to be bold in the way that you are able to throw down simple lines and know that there's so much more that they will represent later in the project. Being a concept artist also takes a level of bravery and that you are able to get things down to their pure essence. You don't have to show everyone every detail. You don't have to be all things to everybody. You have to have a certain amount of courage, a certain amount of confidence to say this very loose organic sketch that lies in front of you. This is the template that we will follow. This is a foundation from which great things will be built. To be a concept artist is to be a dreamer. But the funny thing about dreamers is they can always spot one another. And in a weird way, they build off of one another. I hate to make this analogy, but you know how people that are kind of down and out, they always seem to find each other and somehow they're down and out and this compounds on top of each other and now they're even more farther away from society because they found each other? Even though that's the negative example, on the polar opposite end of the spectrum, the same could be said with dreamers. That when two dreamers find each other, that they see that each other has the same amount of love for the imagination, love for the imaginary, but also the same sort of disdain for the rules. The same mindset that no matter what it takes, I have to build it the way that I see it because the way that I see it is the way that I feel it and the way that I want others to feel it. And when two dreamers find one another and they can see that the other is just as detached as they are and that they now have a common bond that is the language of dream, they dream together an even more ambitious dream. Behind Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and Cinderella, Mary Blair was the dreamer, the concept artist, the first person at the project to start to say, this is a visual exploration of what all of this could grow up to be. 
but she didn't get to create the finished product. The concept artist comes in and establishes the soul of a project, but eventually it is passed off to the architects and the animators and the designers. But in her stage of working on all of these classics, in her moment of her relationship with this work is the moment in which she pushed all the borders, redefining how these stories, these characters, these places could be interpreted by generations to come. And most importantly, in the concepting stage, this is when the characters were each given their soul. But necessity would then craft her visions into the reality that we all know. As artists would pour over her loose sketches, her emotional landscapes, and slowly smooth them out, creating perfect character models, the lines, the shapes, the forms that are just desirable and candy-like, and place them inside of beautiful landscapes, immaculate in their details, but knowing that they were all based off of the loose and flowing universe, composed of bright colors, textures, and Patterns that no one had ever seen before. And at the time, no animator could even understand how to animate. Everything that was created had to be crafted and carved down to what we got. Classics that the world still cherishes today. And it may seem unfair to someone that doesn't truly understand this creative process. That the original comp artist, the creator, doesn't get to craft the final product. It seems fair that the person maybe with the most imagination that says this is what the world should look like doesn't actually get to work on the piece that goes out the door. But this is how artwork works. This is how creativity works. We take something that is very blue sky. We take something that is based off of a dream and we materialize that into an idea. And as fast as the hand can craft all of the thoughts of the brain This is how these ideas are materialized. But eventually, eventually the architecture must take over because the world is restrained by the gravity, by the technology that it has at that moment. Dreams are easy to dream, but near impossible to build into reality. And sadly, we always have to pay attention to what the LCD, the lowest common denominator, can halfway understand in the marketplace so at the very beginning of a project that is destined to succeed we have to put our brightest and our best in first giving them all of the freedom when the project is still free of real world constraints such as technology budget timetables that a project has to be completed upon in the conceptual stage you are free it is just that it is just ideas it is just emotions There are no real-world expectations just yet. And the reason why the brightest and the best are at this level of creation, because everyone down project, everyone down flow, has all the respect and admiration of these folks. Because rarely you can become someone that is this free with this amount of raw vision. Yes, rarely do they win the awards. Rarely are they on the stage. But trust me, they have all the admiration of their peers. And that admiration gets them hired time and time again. And that admiration earns them even more freedom for the next project that lands on their table.
Mary Blair's trailblazing talents would help her break free from the binds of her time. Born Mary Brown Robinson on October 21, 1911, when Blair would turn nine, she would see women get the right to vote here in America. When Blair would be in her early 50s, the feminist movement of the 1960s would be going full steam and would begin to bring more women into the workplace in greater numbers than ever before. But out of sync with time, by the time that the feminist movement would begin in the 60s, Blair had already worked on over 10 influential feature animated films. And Mary Blair wasn't hired because of diversity. She wasn't hired because they thought, gee, it would be neat to get a woman in here and to see what that looks like. Mary Blair was simply hired because she was the right man for the job, meaning she had to beat men for the job. They weren't looking to hire a lady. She took a job that would have belonged to a man. But her talents and her vision were so bright, she earned that spot at the table. She was the most talented person to sit there and to do the work that she was given. It's a true case of the cream does rise to the top. And she earned a spot at the table that don't kid yourself, no one was saving that spot for her. Like many of the abstract masters and pioneers of pop art, visual artists that push the boundaries of what society is able to understand as artwork, Blair had a talent outside of the stylized world that she would eventually gift us all with. A skilled watercolor painter and illustrator, Blair had the talents of understanding, creating a reality-based illustration and painting. I know we all know her for the loose, free form and bold colors, but don't kid yourself, giving a real world subject or project, she could master it and give it to you back and you would think that it came from a camera. She had perfected presenting the world that we all live in. And this is an important note about people that do very talented, abstract things. It's not a lack of talent that puts them into the abstract. It's too much talent in reality to where the mind gets bored. They understand lighting, composition, all of the rules of nature when put into 2D form. There's a boredom that sets in. There's an adventurous spirit that wants to push the boundaries because they've simply already mastered reality, and now the idea of trying to master the dreamscape becomes more seductive. Because when you actually know all of the real world rules to break, that's when you're free enough to create the world that we want to visit. In her 30s, Blair would leave UBI Works and join the creative team at Disney, where she would stay for over a decade, but eventually would step down and become a freelance artist. Once again, trailblazing and living a life not aligned with her timeline. After years of being a freelancer and working with various major clients, Blair would be recruited by Walt Disney to help create a new attraction for the 1964 World's Fair. Blair by this time had become the face of the modernist art style and a master of contrasting primary colors for intense landscapes and creating unique characters. The theme for the 1964 World's Fair was peace through understanding. The fair leaned heavily into mid-century modernism and American commercialism was booming as well was the consumerism and pop culture was beginning to pop. 
all of these different attributes happening at the same time was creating an environment that was perfect for someone such as Mary Blair, perfect for someone such as Walt Disney. This was a time that dreamers could create the products, could create the projects that would keep funding their dreams and to allow them to keep dreaming bigger and bigger by every project, by every product that would be released. And in this moment, Blair found herself a middle-aged woman out of sync with time. A woman that already symbolized everything that the fair was trying to project and forecast into the future. She was all of these themes. She was all of these goals already manifested into one woman. Her art would symbolize peace. Her approach to everything was beyond modern trends and sensibilities. And I can only assume the understanding and patience a woman of her talents and success had to display and endure while she was waiting for the world to catch up for the expectations of women just like her. So I can only imagine what her journey must have been like as a woman, but I can't imagine it was easy whatsoever. And on July 26, 1978, her death was likely brought on by acute alcoholism. At the age of 66, way too soon, Mary Blair left the world that was just beginning to catch up with the life that she had already lived. And I can only imagine the pride that Blair must have felt when a 10-year-old girl back in 1964 floated through the wonders and imagination of It's a Small World. And I could see where it'd be easy for that little girl to think that Walt Disney himself had drawn all of these characters, created all these landscapes. I mean, it's the Walt Disney pictures, Walt's names on the building, but I can only imagine what it must have felt like for that little girl when she was possibly corrected by someone around her that her assumption was wrong and she was misinformed. I can only imagine the smile on that little girl's face when somebody took the time to explain to her that a woman named Mary Blair had created the adventure that she had just set sail on. And at that moment, that little girl hopefully realized that for her, it wasn't a small world because the sky would be the limit for little girls just like her and the women that they would grow up to become. And that the next decades, the next generations were waiting for them and there was a seat at the table. Walt Disney was a fan of Mary Blair. Because Walt's talent was being able to recognize talent. Because he could see that Mary was just as crazy with her view of the world as he was. Walt saw things differently. And I can only imagine when you see somebody else that can see the same reality that you're seeing. That is different than everyone else around you. There has to be a bond. There has to be a kinship that you realize that this person is just as crazy as you are and able to see the things that only you can see. The Walt Disney Corporation has a long history of so many talented artisans and craft people that help build the company, help build all the things that we love about them. But I can't put all of them down on the same list that I would put Walt and Mary Blair down for being the crazy ones. And the crazy ones is something that I always think about 
from the old Apple campaign that goes just like this. And I think if you hear these words, one of my favorite things that's ever been written, it is such an honor to be put into this group. And I see a place for both Disney and Blair there. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, but the one thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward, and while some may see the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. Somewhere when Walt Disney looked at Mary Blair, he saw a version of himself in there. He could see a visionary. He could see a rule breaker. He could see someone that had the same talent that he had to see the world differently. When Walt looked at Mary Blair, he knew that she was the best man for the job and didn't matter that she was a woman because she was qualified. And as many times, Walt's instincts were correct because her legacy will live on, her art will live on, her attractions will definitely live on. But what I find even more important is the inspiration that she gave to little girls that would grow up to be women. Here is someone that looks just like them, someone that represents them, that had all of the impact, created all of the change, and blazed a trail to show them that there was a way for their ideas, for their thoughts, and for their talents. And for that, every time I float past the Eiffel Tower, I always look on the backside for a young girl with big dreams and bright ambition with a balloon that's carrying her up to the sky and knowing that she's leading the way for so many other to follow in her footsteps. I know this is going to be a big ask of you, but uh, do you think I could get you to talk about Mary Blair at all today? Like maybe like five minutes. Remind me again. Uh, who is she? Uh, what does she do? I, I sounds familiar. The name rings a bell. She was the one that said when we're making all these costumes for Pirates of the Caribbean, we're going to need to order two costumes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. It's all coming back. Now you know who I'm talking about? Yes, yes. So, you, you know, your joke is funny, but I would love to know, like, and this is literally what I want to know. You know, there's a moment where you go from just going to Disneyland, riding the rides, experiencing everything, eating the snacks, and then somehow or another you decide to go down a tunnel of, but who made all of this? Who mm. built all of this? What's the cast of characters outside of the Fab Five? Like, what's the real cast of characters that put a shovel in the ground, 
sketched on paper what all this would would turn into. So, like, not only when did you realize that Mary Blair was a person that had influenced a lot of the things that you love most of the attraction, but also when did you start to make that turn as a fan that you needed to know more than what you were experiencing? Hmm. That's a big question. Um, so my love for Disney in general always starts with animation. Um, I think with most people it does. Yeah. Even probably before the parks. Um, um, even though I think of them as very separate things. Uh, so uh, that was my way in for sure. And then obviously falling in love with the parks, especially as I got older, m- more so as I got older. When I was little, more focused on the rides and things like that. But I will say my favorite ride as a kid, as with most kids, I think, is It's a Small World. Yeah. Um, and it is a very distinct thing. It doesn't look like anything else in the park. None of the other rides mimic that that approach or that no. look. Um, even after that was such a big success, you'd think that that would might bleed over into some other things, but it really is the only thing in the park that looks like that. So, um, it's a little dated, right? And especially I remember being sort of in that early, um, late eighties, early nineties, where that look felt particularly dated. I loved it, but it felt like an old fashioned look, Um, right? like old holiday ornaments or something, right? right? Like how it doesn't go out of style, but it doesn't look like of this time. So kind of timeless too. Yeah. It's, every trend has like a cycle in its life to where there's like a furthest point from it being cool. And mm-hmm. that's typically when old buildings get ripped down, when things just get thrown the wayside because they're the farthest away from appreciation. But if you can just ride that wave back around, then there's a newfound love for mid-century modern or, or certain mm-hmm. color palettes, certain textures. And I could imagine that that timeline you're talking about, that was probably the farthest it's a small world was from mm. hitting that golden moment where it's like, now it's forever beloved. But there is that moment. Like, you know, I always try to think of like, what's the movie right now that if you quoted everybody, roll their eyes. Like, is it, my wife you know what i mean like there's always something that's like just far enough away where it's in that cringe zone and every every great piece of art lands in that moment until it rides it long enough to become beloved yeah because it goes through this sort of like contemporary uh old-fashioned uh and then sort of like forgotten and then nostalgia you know uh and then and then even beyond that, it kind of repeats and goes through this thing. But I think the Mary Blair stuff in particular, because of Disney specifically, became sort of timeless. Right. Um, and we got used to that style. And we sort of associate it with the parks. Um, but really, we're associating it with that ride. And I think everybody knows that ride. A smaller contingency knows of Mary Blair. It's an interesting ride when we talk about like the physical location of It's a Small World. Mm. Not only does it kind of have a ginormous footprint, right? Like uh, Philander made a joke that some people, Matterhorn is their berm, that they don't go past Matterhorn because they think everything back there is for kids. But mm. if you go back there like you and I do religiously, uh, it's a small world, like the whole mall area that has around it. Like it's a ginormous footprint. So that already kind of makes it different than say Pirates or uh, Mansion, which are other beloved classics that mm-hmm. fit in a nice, like, little, you know, plot of land with everything else around it. Small World's kind of off into its own. I mean, when there was yep. no Toontown, it was just for sure its own thing back there. And I think that what makes it so special is what you said right out of the gate. It is so unique. They never tried to replicate it. They just let it be its own quiet corner of the park that is what it is, and nothing else has to be that. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I'm amazed it has survived. Uh, not not so much now, because now there is this reverence towards 
everything in the park that was sort of original or that Walt touched. But there was that period in the 80s and stuff, I think, where they were sort of modernizing and everything's a thrill ride. Right. Where that could have easily either shrunk <laughs> yeah. or, or gone away com- completely. Um, because I think something like the dark rides are sort of easy to keep around because they're so small. And right. You don't want to lift that out of fantasy land and stuff, but because of that valuable real estate, um, you know, it, it's it would be a good one to probably move or to have leave. Because even when you look at Toontown, Toontown is sort of situated perfectly too, because you go under the 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 bridge like that, yeah, and it's so very separate because of stylistically, it doesn't make sense anywhere else. But you can feel that that's starting to be sort of the growing pains of the small footprint of Disneyland that this is where we can go. Let's just make this work. So, um, yeah. So I'm amazed that that thing is so big and it stays there. Huge. And even right around it, like nothing's like coming in on it either. Right. Huge. Like, there's space there to, to sort of build around, but it, it maintains, I think the parade route has something to do with. Oh that yeah. Too, yeah. But. Yeah. What's what exists <laughs> behind it with the, where they put the trains to service the trains and how the parade yeah. route comes in and out. But, you know, I would say at this moment, small world is, untouchable right it's there at the 100th year anniversary like it it's because now that there's nostalgia in disneyland and there's the world fair story and you know it's tie-in with Walt and mary blair and raleigh crump like all of that like it feels like something now that's at that level of mansion pirates you know those type of three things where you're like it'll be there at the 100th year anniversary it'll be there at the 200th year anniversary you know maybe yeah. updated but these are just things that they can't get rid of because it is the story of disneyland and what i like about it too i mean obviously i like a lot about it but thematically they don't do these kinds of rides anymore no uh, everything is ip uh, and i'm surprised again that it has lots of they have put ip in there um obviously but the the concept of the ride uh, is something that they would never do again, no. I don't think. I, I couldn't see them. I mean, even possibly at Disney World where they have the the room, like an Epcot is a little bit more abstract in, sure. their, in their theming. But for Disneyland and the heart of Disneyland, um, that no. became its own IP. And it's weird, like even with the direction that Epcot's going in now, you mm-hmm. wouldn't, they wouldn't do this. It would have to be tied into something much bigger as part of like Iger's synergy plan. But what's interesting about Small World uh, – if you look at it from above, if you look at all of the land that it has in like the mall area, uh, your beloved gift shop out front, mm-hmm. the actual size of the facade, the size of the show building, and then because there's nothing happening with the body of water next to it that used to be the motorboats, if you look at all of that land, that could be its own land. I mean, that mm-hmm. could be something massive, but... This thing is too interwoven in the story of Disneyland, the story of Walt Disney, the story of the corporation, U.S. history with World's Fairs that we don't do anymore, and it's a unique tie-in to UNICEF and 64. So it's there for quite a long time. But what I find interesting about this type of design, like this aesthetic, I have such respect for the restriction of minimal design because Mm. my brain understands more lines makes it look more real. And the mm. more lines and the more, you know, depth you put into something and the more you use shadows and shading, the more you can start to fool people like you're really looking at Sleeping Beauty's castle. But with the restriction of minimal design, it's all about the less you put on it and still maintaining that architecture, which is the intended character, the intended storyboard scene, the intended front facade that... You know, it took me a minute to look at that facade and be like, 
oh, there's a different spire that represents like all these different countries. Like it mm. is the story of the world in this. But I have a very hard time doing that because my brain is convinced more is better. As somebody that has pursued this idea of minimal design and, and designing within restriction, did your did your brain start there or did you have to like learn this skill set? Because when I look at people like Mary Blair, I just go, it's amazing. I love it. I don't know how in the hell she ever did it or came up with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a process. I, I, I think you, um, for me, it's like you're looking at something that, something that has done it successfully. So if you do look at something like Mary Blair, you're looking at it and trying to get to the bottom of, well, why is this working for me? What, why is this different? Because it's like, it can just look like a gesture of a brush, right? And that's a, yeah. that's representing a flower, right? But why does that work here, but not in some other places? So you just kind of keep looking at it, I think, and, and start breaking it down, breaking it down, breaking it down. Um, but she's like a master of it. Um, you know, my, uh, my work specifically tends to focus more on like character stuff. Um, so I look at something like a Hello Kitty or something like that and, and think, why is this working and why is this iconic and why does this last uh, through time? And, and so you just start playing with it. Cause like, I think most people do start, like, I think most people start drawing realistically, right? Like you yes. think that's the goal of drawing. Right. I should be able to do the still life and convince people that it's a photograph. And, uh, and I think a lot of people define art that way too. It takes a while for you to get past that and start liking the abstract and, and that. Um, so I think it's just all a process. I think everybody comes about it in a different way, but it is just that reducing, reducing, reducing uh, for the sake of um, representation, not for just the sake of reducing. So it's that balance. Yes. So that's why I think you can draw something simple and you can draw that like a thousand times and never quite get that balance right. So it's kind of a puzzle, I think, that you're kind of always undertaking. What I find interesting is that when you look at the 50s and the 60s, mm. you see a lot more like abstract artwork. And, you know, Mary Blair is like, you know, on the shallow end of what abstract can be because you can mm. look at it and tell what it is. I mean, a Jackson right. Pollock is like way out there. But you look at the abstract art of like the 50s and 60s, which is totally aligned with how affordable and how mass available photography became. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost as when the camera came about, that old desire of you have to be able to illustrate perfect was no longer needed. We we had a tool that could do that for, yep. for civilization. But there is something about the Pablo Picassos of the world that can draw you sitting mm -hmm. in a chair where it looks like you're going to blink. And then they take that skill set and go off into this direction. And I've always been able to look at abstract art or this sort of, you know, uh, more stylized art. Mm -hmm. And you can quickly tell the difference between people that can only draw this good and people that decide to draw this way. You know what well, I mean? Like exactly. you can see that very easily where it's a limit of talent and, or this is the talent to be able to go in this direction. And you're obviously in that latter group of, you know, you can do other things. You just chose to spend your life perfecting something that looks quite simple, but you and I both know is incredibly hard. Yeah. I mean, especially if you look at Mary Blair's early work, she did these very sophisticated watercolors. I mean, she's, she's quite an accomplished painter and water watercolorist, uh, dramatically different than the style that she approved. So you actually, which is rare for someone like her, I think you get to see that flip um, where she decides to go, like her color was always great, but then there's this flip that happens. And it's right around the time that they do that South American trip with Walt Disney, where uh, you still see some of her classic 
painting, but it's starting to go in this very different direction where she's sort of inspired by these colors and this sort of uh, foreign culture at the time and, and how she chooses to sort of capture it as opposed yeah. to just represent it. Um, so it's fascinating to see that. And yes, it shows exactly that she is capable of drawing something sort of more lifelike or photographic, but she's choosing to do this very interpretive thing. It's also interesting because she is an illustrator, I, I think, at heart. Like, um, And she pushes the boundaries of abstractism in illustration in a very commercial setting in a way that I think few people have been able to do where this kind of crazy style has become so accepted and, and emulated um, over the years that uh, you don't even see it as abstract anymore. You just see it as like, oh, that's that kind of style. And we call it mid-century, but I think she's the outlier in that. Like she's the only one that does that style. And when you think of mid-century, mid-century is actually pretty slick. Yeah. And, um, it looks way more like Swiss design than, yeah, than what she's doing. Exactly. But you, you, you bring up a lot of thoughts. One is how are people of the fifties and sixties, which are like socially very, very conservative, so mm. accepting of a look that is so far out there. Like I always love the juxtaposition of the fifties of what the art looked like versus the lifestyle that people were living. It seems like there's a massive space between the two that, you know, uh, dad has a job, mom stays at home and cooks. There's three kids. We go to this school, we go to this church, and this is what an owl looks like. Like I find yeah. that to be fascinating. But I think what people like Mary Blair have done and the path that you're on as well is you guys seem to find enough of a balance of like realism so we can tell what it is, but that's mashed up with enough magic to where we are allowed in one piece of art to forget the rules. For example, like her landscapes continuously will break the rules, like the planes, mm -hmm. the way that things come together. There's no real solid geometry or real world ties in there, but there's enough realism. We understand that it's a tree we understand that that's a lake. We understand that it's characters in a boat, even though it would never work in the real world because right. there's enough magic stitching it all together, which really, I think what this art comes down to and why if you're good at this, you have work for the rest of your life is because it's very personality driven, which when you look at people that draw accurately, you just don't see that same level of personality. Yeah, I, it's a different appeal like not yeah. to take away from that skill because no, it is no. a skill it's, it's definitely something i cannot do and i'm always i am in awe of it too like everybody else i'm like oh my gosh like that's really good right like that's your first thought is like they're really good um, i know people that can do realistic illustration that blows my mind but yeah, that being yeah. said you and my bud dan styles equally blow my mind because i'm a trained illustrator i know how hard it is to do what you guys do so i'm just like this hack in the middle it's like well these guys are really good at real and these guys are really good at abstract i need to get out of here and just become a podcaster yeah i mean and their shades of gray all, all the way through sure. so someone like even like um jason edmiston who does these eyes they're, they're not photorealistic no. per se when you get up close to them they're not photorealistic but there is enough there it's these it's what he knows to do with light and a gesture yes and just if you put a piece of white here it's going to look perfect like it's the reflection and you get it um but he's doing the same kind of thing it's just in a different like level of of doing that you did the same thing too with the fantasy land pieces you did for wonderground and the disneyland pieces you did for wonderground it captures the feeling of the thing it's not trying to represent it as we know it or the physical world or 
get out the ruler and make sure the perspective's right. <laughs> Thank, and God. Like, Thank God. Yeah, it's capturing the feeling. And I think that's exactly what she does on the most mundane of things. And it turns it into a character instead of just being, you know, a hippopotamus or, or a building or a structure or something. So uh, I think a lot of people do this. It's just, she's done it in a very specific personal way that um, we don't associate with a movement or, a, or an art style. We associate with her. Well, in many ways, she's kind of like the Beatles, right? Like the Beatles are defined as the best rock band because mm-hmm. they were the first to do what they did. And she, in many ways, was kind of the first to do a lot of what she did at such a commercial level. You're right. I mean, mm-hmm. there were other people that are dabbling in this, but she was the one to really take the look and realize it and go the whole way. But for me, I'm just fascinated in like this type of character design, right? Because if you've ever been um, an illustrator that gets to work with, you know, a, a Walt Disney or one of the movie uh, studios on brand character design is such a thing, you know, Oh, Mickey mouse. We would never use a stroke that big. The the nose is off. Like there are people that hold like the Holy grail of how to illustrate Mickey mouse. And they could just go over you with a red line and be like, this is off. This is off. This is off. They could literally give you like 30 points of failure to why it's not like on character. But then right. you take someone like Mary Blair, who all of these characters are so fluid. They look different sketch to sketch. Yet I always understand that's her rendition of Peter Pan. That's her rendition of like Alice in Wonderland, a, a subject she worked on a lot. And to me, I'm so envious of that fluidness that it doesn't have to be the same each time. It just has to pull those mental triggers. There has to just be like 75% of it there. So my brain goes, oh, that's that's Alice in Wonderland. I can tell by the dress and the blonde yeah. hair. And what's interesting is, you know, that approach works really well now because these things are so iconic and the films are so recognizable right, and are right. subconscious. But to be that she wasn't riffing, she was creating this thing as she yeah. goes here, right? You know, it was her decisions on these color things that it was sort of this push and pull with the animators who obviously couldn't take her very literal uh, interpretations into animation. It just wouldn't it just wouldn't work that way. It'd be impossible. Maybe now in the digital world, it would be a little bit more possible. But back then it was this... I mean, the animators are kind of saying like, well, why do we keep using her? It's too hard. <laughs> like it doesn't translate. And Walt's telling them to get more of her style into the thing. And they're, and they're having this very difficult uh, push and pull. But in that push and pull, it creates this sort of perfect uh, blend of both styles. A- and it goes in sort of different levels of success in different films. Right. Like you see her style very clearly in something like Johnny Appleseed, where it's almost like, oh, yep, you can tell that's her backgrounds. Whereas when you get into Cinderella, it's a little more mixed. They've they've toned it down. They've, you know, so if she did a gestural hallway, they're going to clean that up and make it perspective and right. tighten it up. And so you get some of it, but it gets watered down a lot. That's why the the concept art for that stuff is just fantastic. Well, it's one of those things where I feel like this type of artwork, you can love it, you can appreciate it, but I think also a little goes a long way, and mm. especially when we look at the technology that they had available to them back then. Because when you look at all the storyboard uh, comp art that she did for Peter Pan, mm-hmm. it's beautiful, but I don't think they quite had the technology to do that for 90 minutes back then yeah. and to tell a story, just pure animation. Like how would the characters talk? How would they move? Like it's great in a single shot. I don't know that there was a way to make it fluid back then. Um, and really we don't see that type of hyper 
stylized illustration mm-hmm. until we see this new modern version of Mickey Mouse, right? Where there is finally enough animation tools, digital tools, where they can take this new version of Mickey Mouse and it does look hand-drawn, but you know that there's a lot of computers in there putting in those textures, putting in those bizarre backgrounds, moving them through these environments. Like, I just think what she was doing as single cells, there wasn't the technology to tell a story that way at least the whole way through. Oh, yeah. And like you said, it might work for something like Fantasia. And she did work on a lot of those, um, the I forget, anthology films where there's collections of shorts. Um, so, you know, it's in a sustained five minute short, that's fine. It might be hard on a, you know, a traditional story to, and, and trying to capture some of that would be um, jarring, I think. Yeah. So I, I think it does. It's, it's nice that they did have that push and pull. I think that is what created it so, so nicely for the feature films. Um, but if you do look at something like Peter Pan, especially, I think you start seeing how like the color choices in there, especially when they go to Neverland is, is, is wild. Some of them are just nuts uh, that you wouldn't, we're used to it because we're familiar with the film. But if you look at it, it's like, it's not some representational thing of uh, foliage or, or plants or anything like that. It's just bright pinks and crazy colors for these things. Um, and sometimes it works really well. And sometimes it's a little at odds with the very traditional character animation uh, that they're doing, but you can definitely see the, um, the influence there. That's where I get envious of people that were able to be the best of their time period, because, you know, going back to the Beatles, you know, they played a lot of these riffs when nobody else had played them yet. You know, they had a lot of these parts before anybody else. And when the Beatles started looking at song writing and song structure as it doesn't have to be intro, uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, like it can right. be whatever we want to. And a lot of those, you know, the Sergeant Pepper era, like a lot of that just feels like parts stitched together and you never get back to the beginning of the song. It becomes more of a journey. Uh, when you look at somebody like Mary Blair, like she was able to do these wild color palettes that if you and I did them today, be like, Oh, you like Mary Blair? Yeah. Like you exactly. get this one time pass to do this wild stuff. And then you're kind of forever known to it. And I mean, some of the color palettes are just absolutely insane. And I would mm-hmm. love to know what motivated those decisions because they're so out in left field. Yeah. I think again, it is emotion. It is, it is trying to get a feeling and, and then it's like drawing the eye to certain things and just kind of doing it that this color looks great against this color. And that's why we're going to do it. It doesn't have to make sense because it really just doesn't have to make sense. And it's great that people took to it. Right. Like people weren't like, Oh, that's such a weird movie. Or that doesn't like work. That. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's great that someone like her can do what she does and it becomes just part of the language of a Disney, of a Disney film. I think so like with everything going so digital now and everything kind of looking like Pixar um, to, to start moving away and trying to do something a little more interesting, even in that world. Cause I think we're still going more towards like, Oh, look, they can do water crazy right. realistic. Right. But like it's more interesting when they can kind of stylize that or find a way even in the digital world to make that a more interesting representation than just saying like, well, this is how water flows. So that's what we're trying to capture here. I do love when um, animators try to impress or push themselves. For example, when you look at Toy Story, right? The first ever full length uh, digitally animated uh, cartoon. You have Buzz Lightyear, where I love the cockiness of this team. You're like, what if one of the guys 
has a bubble that goes over his head. So we not only have to illustrate what he's seen, but the reflection of how it comes back to him. Like, I love how they're like, how about for our next movie, we do something underwater because underwater will be extremely difficult to do for 90 minutes. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's this bizarre thing with animators and illustrators where it's like, I got to keep pushing the boundaries and giving myself like the impossible task where this could be so much easier if one of our characters wasn't a spaceman with a bubble over his head. Right. Well, that's the thing with Toy Story 2 is it is an interesting use of what the technology could do at the time. Like it could mm-hmm. do plastic and clean and shiny really well. But then when you try to get into humans and like the disaster, dog, disaster, it, it just falls apart. Um, so for the majority of the film, it's just these plastic shiny toys. And that's great. And the story in Toy Story really carries the day there. Like it, 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 makes that thing triumph over just being sort of this digital novelty that it could have been. Um, and cause now by the time you look at toy story three and four, they're just gorgeous. They're just these perfect little gems of films and they've maintained some style in that. Um, but it has gone a little more photorealistic, I think than uh, something else that they've done where it's a little more experimental, like something like inside out or even yeah. Coco. When you, I oh, think of my favorite movie. Uh, when yep. you look at uh, something like toy story though, the first one, it goes to show what every creative knows, lean into your strengths, get away from your weaknesses. We yep. can't do people. How do we make a story that doesn't need people? Focus on the toys, focus on consumer yeah. products. If these things were, you know, routed by industrial designers and made on a manufacturer's line, then it's all geometry. The computer yep. can handle all this. Computer can't handle organic shapes yet. So by going in that direction, they're setting, setting themselves up for uh, success. Mm-hmm. The thing about, people like Mary Blair though, that it always seduces me is yeah. The character designs fluid. The color is, is fantastic, but there's something about, you know, people that are very, very good at what they do that this is what always draws me in the most. How do they handle the environment? And I'm not talking a pirate ship. I'm talking literally the environment. Like Mm. one of the things I love about like, old, old school Asian artwork is how different it is than the way that, you know, we saw things in the West. Like how does Mary handle wind, water, fire, trees? Like to me, that is the art of what she does. Cause when you look at some of these night pieces, the way that she shows like the clouds as these, you know, interweaving almost like pattern type things with texture in them. Like to me, that goes so far beyond my skill set. I can see it and I can appreciate it for how hard it is. But I I love those type of details so much more than whatever's in the foreground. Yeah. No, I mean, I think um, that's why I was so at odds, I think, with the animation, because animation is a little bit more literal, right? Yes. It is still an art form. And they are still painting a lot of this stuff. But for some reason... It, you know, their goal is to sort of do a, a closer representation of life, but hers are so personal um, that it, it is interesting to try to see something that's uh, so personal for her, but then try to bring it into this very mainstream medium of, of, of popular animation. Um, Cause this wasn't experimental stuff that we're doing. Right. Um, but yeah, like it, it's amazing that she uh, one was able to do it and that it was so successful. That's yeah. even in like her advertising work and things like that, people just took to it. And that's, to me, it's just, it's stunning uh, that people just didn't reject it or be like, I don't know what, that's not a cloud. Like, that's not how clouds look. <laughs> what are you doing? Crazy broad? Yeah. You know, here's so, the, what I find interesting about her story, though, is that she breaks out as an artist in a time where there weren't a ton of women 
breaking out in this field. Mm. And it wasn't like back then there was, you know, a push for diversity or let's well round out the workplace. Like, you know, we've seen over our lifetime, like, and I'm saying this sentence wrong purposefully to drive home a point to everybody. She was the best guy for the job. She got all the work that she got because she was absolutely the best at what she did. And it probably was not easy for her to break these barriers or to be treated with respect or to go where she went. But what do we always say in the world of art? Like there's no seniority at any moment. Anybody can always lap you because it's always about who's the best. Her look was that bright, that bold, that good, that it was able to open doors, take down barriers that existed for other people because the work was that good. Yeah. I mean, and I'm just going by the art here. Obviously we don't have any behind the scenes access to the conversations that took place then, but how brave of this uh, woman at this time period at this studio to sort of just do her thing, yeah. right? Like not to be like, okay, well, this is how they draw and this is how the films look. So I'll, I'll gear it towards that, but to do that and stick to it, get pushback from the animators. And, you know, fortunately she had Walt in her corner who was obviously the one that kept bringing her back for these projects and everything. Um, so that's, that speaks volumes, I think, to um, his eye, you know, yes, like that he 100%. just liked this and kept pushing it and saying like, we're got to find a way to make this work. Um, yeah. I, I think that's, I can't imagine if she's as successful as she is in this field at this time, what she had to sort of endure oh. that we would never know. Right. It, it, the most subtle of, all day terrible long. things that had to All go through, long. right? And yeah, and probably if we're being realistic about it, probably a lot of things that at that moment was just just the way it is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, who even knows right. if she went home pained every day about what she experienced? She's probably it's just the way it is. Like, yeah. such a different time. But you bring up an excellent point of Walt having just always having his eye on the prize. What's going to mm-hmm. make me the best? finished product what is going to resonate most with people and he could see in her work what was great and how it would cut through everything else even though it was completely in left field of the time uh there's sort of a disneyland look right and Mm. and at the beginning you said you know small world's great because it's it's just different and it's so interesting that you know a look like mark davis would end up being kind of the signature look of Disneyland for the characters, the way that the jokes are, the stories. It's hard to imagine it the other way, right? Like what if he had just one attraction off back in the corner and everything else went Mary Blair style? Like I almost think that would be way too much of a good thing. And you know, Mark Davis, phenomenal illustrator, but he had more of a, I'm going to say more of a working class type look to his Mm. work that everybody could digest. It worked in so many different areas, but Mary Blair, what she did, it was perfect for what you see on the people mover. It was perfect for back at small world, but it fit into those spots really, really well. But you know, Walt knew too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, um, uh, she's she's the standout. Like, I mean, she's her own thing. Clearly. Like Mark was doing, I think, um, like what was expected and doing it extremely well, right? Right. Like, right. But it wasn't out of left field. It wasn't like, oh, I wouldn't expect this. It it probably was at the time to a certain degree, but that's 
more like saying like, oh, we didn't think we should add humor here. Um, and I think that's one of his main contributions is story and sort of enhancing that story. But I think that's what they were already doing in the films. And yeah. he just brought that film thing to the attractions right. and saying we should treat these things the same way. Um, so I feel like his contribution is a bit more timeless in that way because it just sort of hovers over everything they do and it can still be uh, uh, contributed or um, uh, applied to what they're doing now with with storytelling in just a more advanced way. But the Mary Blair thing just feels so like of that time and of her specifically. You, you don't look at Small World and think that looks like a bunch of different things or it looks like uh, anything else. It just it exists on its own. You know, we're going a little bit more towards that with the IP being added and some of the upgrades. But you can always tell when they've gone outside of the Mary Blair look uh like oh that you know whatever that son doesn't look like a mary blair son they they must have added that in the 80s or something yeah it 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 always has a very unique like we're going for this one of the things i look forward to most when i finally take my big journey out to walt disney world as a Mm. super fan is i cannot wait to see that mural that she has is that the contemporary resort that that's a contemporary resort yeah yeah i've seen that a thousand times on youtube i've looked at photos of it and it just looks like such a masterpiece and you know to have something that big as a as a leave behind what an honor yeah, it's huge. It's great. It's fantastic. And it's amazing, again, that that thing sticks around. Again, I think it's too historical now to take it down, uh, but uh, it's amazing it lasted. It survived uh, different periods where people weren't as uh, concerned about it. Um, even the stuff in like uh, Tomorrowland and Disneyland uh, that, you know, a little out of place, her style in, in Tomorrowland. Um, so it makes sense that they would have to sort of change that. Um, but uh it's just sad to see that beautiful thing. Like I think the star Tours side is definitely gone. They say the rumor is that the other side is still there underneath it. Wow. But, but who knows, who knows? When so. you look at old footage, vintage footage of people on the people mover and mm-hmm. the colors and the shapes of those carts and all of those white, like mid-century modern, like, you know, futurism buildings everywhere. And then rolling past those murals. It's like, Oh, that's where I want to go. If you put me yep. in a time like, machine, I mean, that's where I want to go. Like we always say, what that it's it's too bad that Tomorrowland can't just permanently celebrate that space age, mid-century time. You know, it's a safer bet than always trying to predict a future that's always changing, and you know, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the worse. Yep, Jared, what do you say we uh, hop over into the clubhouse here for Club Thirteen Thirteen members and continue our hangout conversation? Thank you so much, though, for breaking down like your uh, vision on Mary Blair and how. You know, it's just the right amount of magic what she does. I think that it means a lot coming from you uh, for everybody to hear that just because of what you've been able to do with with your career. Fellow citizens of Disneyland, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Disneyland for Designers. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I hope that you feel like you learned something new about Mary Blair, even though it might not be a historical fun fact, maybe a perspective, a way to look back at everything that happened through the context of history. And I always say context is king when you're looking back on how history shaped itself. But maybe today we should say context is queen. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I would encourage you to maybe head over to club1313.com. Consider becoming a member to help me keep creating bigger and more ambitious projects like the one today and all the videos that I do over on YouTube. And don't forget three more Thursdays of live coverage out of touch of Disney. You can follow me along over at YouTube at adventures in design 
go live six o'clock on Thursdays and I provide you a window into the magic. And like I said, if you'd like to support this content, consider becoming a member over at club 1313.com. The content is only a part of it because what we're really creating is a community of a bunch of like-minded individuals that enjoy what Disneyland really is a small little town where all of the citizens come together. And for a day, everyone is their better, their best self. That's the goal. That's the conquest. And so far over in our private discord and our different zoom calls we've done and virtual hangouts, we have had a great time and really displayed what it means to be a true citizen of Disneyland. Okay. Coming up in part two bonus content for said club 1313 members, Jared and I talk a little bit of current events, Jared's perspective on Disneyland Ford, Jared's thoughts on touch of Disney and how he feels about getting back into the magic, which friends we're now about 30 days away from. What do you say we get started with part two in the club 1313 clubhouse join today at club 1313.com become a member of the community and get the full part of every Disneyland for designers episode and all of our hangouts. Part two starts right now at club1313.com. But now as we uh, transition over into some bonus content, I, I want to talk to you about some current events. Uh-oh. Touch of Disney has now uh, entered into its, it's getting ready to enter into its third week of people being in a full Disney's California adventure. Um, I know you're a lurker. I know that you have <laughs> looked at some photos or maybe watched a video or here or there. My question for you is, do you feel like you're missing out or does a attractionless just food festival that's not a food festival DCA, does that feel like something that you can kind of sit on the bench because we're so close to things getting totally back to normal? I think if it were in Disneyland, I'd feel a lot more like I just want to be there. Yeah, you, know? you better <laughs> like, believe it. I just want to be inside the park. No rides. Don't need rides because we don't normally do rides anyway. Yeah. Um, with DCA, having gone in that one time we did go in, uh, just when it was sort of the limited uh, you know, areas that you can go to. Free DCA. That, yeah, that kind of took care of it for me. I'm like, yeah, this is good. It's nice to be back here. It's nice to see these things. But I didn't feel like this need to go beyond that. I mean, of course it'd be nice to, right. uh, to walk around that park, but I didn't feel like, Ooh, you know, it felt like enough normal for that time. So once Disneyland starts opening and, and if they do it in some strange way, I might still kind of hang back until it gets a little more normal. Uh, we'll see how that whole process goes as far as getting tickets and all that stuff. But um, when I see the DCA stuff, I think it's fantastic to see people in the parks again, but I don't feel the need that I have to, uh, especially with parks feeling like they're opening soon. Like I'm like, Oh, I'll just wait. I'll just wait. <laughs> That's the thing that fascinates me the most is that literally you know, the guidelines that we were given by the state of California back in October, there was everybody thought, oh, we're close. We're close. Even Disneyland thought, oh, we're close. We're close any day. Right. Now. And then they gave them guidelines that I had said at the time, like these guidelines are impossible for a reason. They want them to be impossible. Right. They just don't want to deal with theme parks. There's a wild election getting ready to happen. We're getting ready to go into Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's where people are going to break the rules and they just don't think that they need to deal with theme parks. And then for the most part, these companies have the money to roll another five months. I'm not saying that it's fair. I'm just saying that's what happened in my estimation. Right. Then all of a sudden, now you can reopen a thousand times easier than you could back in October. And I know that things are improving and there's a new administration and people are being responsible and the work's being done. So I understand how we got here, but all of a sudden it's like, now we can go back 
to a lot of things we couldn't do before, like just out of nowhere. But that news out of nowhere just so happened to land the day after Mm. Knott's was starting their food festival. Universal had sold theirs out. Disneyland had sold theirs. I think even they had one out at SeaWorld, which sounds gross to me. But uh, (laughs) I just found it interesting that Touch of Disney was able to sell out its first three weeks. They added on an additional two weeks, five weeks of tickets. So five events per week, you know, 25 events were able to completely sell out. And then the next day, oh, by the way, we're reopening the park. Like the timing on that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, I'm not going to say that there was a conspiracy, but it seems like there might have been a gentleman's agreement of we'll let you guys sell out your food festivals. because I know you plan those, but this is going to happen as soon as the last one goes up. Because had touch of Disney tickets went on sale after the announcement of Disneyland reopening, these things would have gotten slaughtered. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think the timing, I think everyone kind of thought some, some version of that, right? Yeah. Like when, when the timing came out and that, um, who knows? Like I, part of me still feels like we're in this sort of weird transition. Like, yeah, we're heading towards reopening, but things are looking kind of <laughs> scary again. Sure. And, and and anything can change in a week, right? Like things can just skyrocket and who knows. And and I think that was always my concern is that we would open too soon. And then what are you going to do? Close again the next month? You know, like that would be awful. Or, or are we beyond that where it can be negotiated that, well, if you just keep doing, you know, is that the path forward now that we probably should close, right? but we're not going to close the state down again. We're just going to say, okay, everybody just be careful and, and do these things. So who knows what that case may be. But yeah, I agree. I, I think I, I thought the same exact thing. Like my first thought was like, Oh, are they refunding these things or yeah, like, just still happening? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I think part of the reason why, and you know, I don't know anything. So this is just me as a fan, right? This is me as a fan, but I feel if I were to put my business hat on and look at all this from a super fan's perspective, I feel like as soon as the state of California cracked open the door, I feel like Bob Chapik wanted to put his foot in it because mm-hmm. he knows that getting the park reopened will mean that it will stay open. But if they took their time on reopening and things got bad, California might be like, eh, maybe not so quickly. And right. so I feel like when Chapik said what I feel was an overly um, optimistic April 30th, just from what I've seen being out at the park, I kind of feel like the troops on the ground were like, you, you, you think we're going to be able to do that? And it almost right. to me seemed like, you know, there are people that um, are calling the shots. And then there was people on the ground that are that are on the front lines living it. And I feel like there was a bit of a space between the two. But I understand Chapik's idea of like, look, it's going to be down and dirty. We, they haven't even announced tickets yet. We don't know when tickets go on sale. It's time of this recording. Uh, but I just feel like it's like, we got to just get open. If we get open, we stay open forever. If we don't get open, we could risk having another 60, 90 day penalty thrown on us where we can't mm-hmm. reopen our park. And Hey, if it were my business, I would be doing the same thing, especially when you see how many other less responsible businesses have been able to go pretty much the whole year. I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, I think it's inevitable. I think it kind of has to, like yes. it has to go this way. Um, it, it'll be that just in the next coming, like, I don't know how they manage all that because so like Disney world's done a great job and that's Florida and that's a whole different, sure. you know, thing. And I, I wonder with everything being so local here uh, uh, and especially with the talk that it's California only, yep. right? Is yep. that, that's still the case. Still the case. 
we will be able to see if there's a problem a lot quicker yeah. than people going to Florida and then leaving and going back. And now they're making their numbers at home go up. Right. But I feel like here we'll see it a little bit more clearly if there's a problem or with cast members and things like that. But um, again, I, I think you're right. I think that's exactly what it is. Like, we got to go ahead. This is what we've been waiting for. We're going to open. We might not be great. But we're gonna we're gonna do everything we possibly can to make to hit that date. And you know, I still stand by for the last year, my favorite place to go has been Disneyland just to see mm-hmm. everybody in society living by the same set of rules. Like I don't see that now when I walk through my neighborhood. I don't see that right. anywhere else. And largely it is the only place that I do go because I get so frustrated at seeing alternate realities colliding when I take a walk around the the park or or you know, yeah. going out to eat's not even possible for me right now because I can't get outside of the stress of everything that I'm seeing around me. So I kind of think that there are two mentalities. There are people, and I'm going to ignore that I have a YouTube channel and that I create content for a living. So let's just throw me out of, out of the mix. Cause I have a lot mm-hmm. riding on being at Disneyland on April 30th, but I kind of feel like there's two, two types of fans. There are people that are like, Oh my God, I have to be there the first day. I have to be there the first weekend or I'm completely missing out. And then I feel like there's other people that can be like, well, I can stop and wait until it gets figured out because I'm more worried about my experience than Mm. the FOMO and the bragging rights. So I thought it would be interesting to sort of break down. Like if you go on the first day, my estimation, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, my estimation is this expect everybody to be walking around with a camera in front of their face, Mm -hmm. expect everybody to be some sort of influencer of some blog, some Instagram account, a podcast or YouTuber, like, just expect it to be a lot of people making it all about them, me included. I'm not better than anybody else in this scenario that I'm painting. Expect it to be like a lot of like the most rabid of fans that are there to just like crush it and conquer it and expect the park to be a bit sloppy for things not to be fully realized, not fully figured out. On an upside, though, do expect for there to be kind of once in a lifetime sort of events because Disney wants to put on the biggest, best show possible out of the gate. Mm -hmm. So to my mind, that's the type of person and that's what you get if you go on those first days. If you wait a couple of weeks, you get more in there with people who are there to be there. You get a more rounded Disneyland experience where they figured out things and you might also not get a couple of perks that they threw out in the beginning because they were trying to put their best foot forward for, you know, media and super fans. Do you think that I have it right on that's what you should anticipate if you go week one versus like three weeks in? I, I agree for sure. I think that's the case with every every Disney thing, right? They could say you get a free button today and it's it's chaos and people are <laughs> mad and crying it. and, you know, everyone acting like, well, I got my button. I don't know what happened to you. Um, so there's always that aspect of it now. So it would almost be nice if they did do sort of a larger media day for those folks, you know, and yeah. just knock out a, a smaller attendance day where they just say, okay, come in.